If you will, look with me at Luke chapter 2. Since Chase already read this passage, I just want to read sort of the climactic part of this and then pray. Look at verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Let me pray. Father, we, we ask that your spirit would illumine our minds, that you would turn on the lights in our dark minds so that we would understand your word, so that we would love your word, rejoice over it and repent before it so that we would hear it as you rending the heavens and speaking to us about your son. Pray that as we consider this passage, we see the song of these angels as they look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be moved to similarly sing, to praise you, that we would be like these shepherds who run from this scene believing and rejoicing and proclaiming your praises. Help us to understand our great need and our even greater Savior that you have provided. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the questions we've been looking at um, as we've been looking at this series here in, in Luke, going sort of backwards in Luke, if you will, to specifically during the Advent season, look at these songs having to do with the Savior. One of the things we've been asking is what, what leads to or moves us to sing? Whether, whether the singing is through the writing of songs, maybe you're moved to be a songwriter, or you're, you're moved to just sing along with someone who has written or is singing a song. What moves it, us to that? Well, well, in our culture, it could be um, just the pure entertainment value of a song or um, the catchiness of a song itself, right? There's some songs that when they come on, you, just, you have to sing along because they're that catchy. That might be what makes us sing. But sometimes we're actually moved to sing about something when we see and know and experience the glory of that thing. It's actually the magnificence and the beauty and the glory of that thing that moves us to sing. And when we see that thing in all of its magnificent splendor and we're moved to be in awe, we often sing and sometimes even spontaneously. Spontaneously as we see Mary doing and Zechariah doing and today as we see the angels doing and on Wednesday night as we'll see Simeon doing. I, I um, learned about spontaneous song as a result of being in awe on, on two different occasions in my life. I'm, I'm not much of a singer. I like to, but it's really bad, right? Um, but I, I do enjoy a good song. And I remember the first time sort of being in awe and spontaneous song that occurred. I was, I was uh, in the army. And I know most of you are going, you were in the army, yes. It's, it's, a, it's a part of my testimony I generally don't share. You know that part of the testimony you don't like to tell people about? That that part of my testimony. Anyway, not because I was ashamed of the army, but because uh, the army was ashamed of me. But anyway, I was there 
<laughs> and and um, I remember uh, being on base. I was I was in basic training at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which in the summer is is um, akin to a taste of hell. And while I was there, we gathered um, at the Fourth of July, and there were thousands of us, the soldiers, etc. And um, they they had this video in which they were showing us images of America, both the beauty of America geographically and with regard to you know images that sang of our of our freedom, of our liberty, in the United States. And and um, this music came on, and they this was in '91. We had just um, fought the first Gulf War and won, and and we had just uh, won that. And I was there, and we were we we. Broke out in song, thousands of guys, you know, singing Lee Greenwood's song, Proud to Be an American, right? <laughs> and I got to tell you, as cheesy and corny as that sounds, I was so moved at that point in my life, that spontaneous eruption of praise over the privilege that we have to have the freedoms that we have in America and to live in this great country. And so I remember that as the first time I was impressed by something that was so much grander than me that it led us to spontaneously sing. Um, I also remember a second one being with Joseph Bonura. Uh, some of you guys know Joseph Bonura. Some of you don't. Joseph Bonura was uh, my intern at, when I was a youth pastor at River Lakes. He was also um, then the junior high pastor at River Lakes after his internship with me. And then since then went away to seminary and then we hired Joseph at Radius International, the missions organization we helped start. We hired him there to to work with students. Um, he's sort of like a campus pastor, if you will. And he and his wife kind of play that role there. And uh, I remember traveling with Joseph quite a bit. And Joseph was a spontaneous singer. You know, his family sang. And Joseph's not a great singer either. He doesn't seem to know that. But <laughs> but, but, but he's not. He's okay. He's better than me. Um, but I was on more than one occasion, and maybe this happened to some of you with Joseph, driving through somewhere like Arizona where you can see the stars. I don't remember what state it was. It wasn't Bakersfield because you can't see them here. Well, I just remember that. But, you know, you see the grandeur of the heavens and the stars, and Joseph just wants to pull over on the side of the road and get us all out of the van, and he breaks out singing, How Great Thou Art. And I remember the first time this happened, I thought, What a strange dude. <laughs> but, but I realized... Over time, Joseph's awe of God and how that moved him to sing, even spontaneously. And this Christmas, what we're really doing is learning songs or praises, proclamations, which are coming from the lips of various people as they see and are in awe of Jesus. They're moved to spontaneously break out in praise. And today what I want to do is, is look to something a bit different than Mary or Zechariah or the shepherds or Simeon, all who break out in praise when they're in awe of Jesus. And I want to look specifically at something that might be a little bit um, of a foreign concept to us. We hear about it every Christmas, but we don't contemplate it, which is that the angels break out in spontaneous praise over what they see in Jesus. They're moved to praise the Lord based on what they see in Jesus. They sing. And as we see them sing, and as we even see the shepherds seeing them sing, we hear 
um, how and see how the shepherds responded to all this. So let's look at the setting, verse 8. Let's look at the setting of this, this song of the angels. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And just, just so you're aware about the shepherds in the first century, first century shepherds are not, you know, this glorious picture when we think of shepherds of, oh, aren't they lovely and amazing, and don't we all want to be shepherds? And first century shepherds are guys who were considered untrusted, unclean, liars, thieves. They were only in the societal status just above leopard, lepers, just above lepers, they weren't even actually allowed to testify in court because they were considered so inherently untrustworthy. And that's who we have here is at the birth of Christ, Jesus has just been born, and Luke turns us to the fact that in the same region, in the same region in which Jesus has just been born and wrapped up in swaddling cloths and lied, lying in a manger, in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Why are the shepherds frightened by the glory of God? For the same reason that any of us would be frightened if we saw any part of the glory of God. Now, this is an angel of the Lord, and in some way he's shining forth the glory of God, And any of us confronted with that would be in fear. In fact, that is the consistent picture throughout the Bible. You will not see God in his glory and say, look, I've I've got this shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy. Check it out. We're we're homies. That's not going to happen. That isn't going to occur. It doesn't even occur to John, the, Jesus, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who lays his head on the chest of Jesus at Passover, at the Lord's Supper, when he institutes that. It doesn't even happen with him. When John sees Jesus in his glory in the book of Revelation, John falls to his face in fear. This is the man who walked with him for three and a half years, who was his friend, whom Jesus declared his love for, and he sees Jesus' glory and he falls on his face in fear, and that would happen to any of us. It happens consistently throughout the scripture. God's glory, when we see it, even a piece of it, even a little part of it, will absolutely scare us to death. Because it's in that moment that you recognize your humanity your smallness, your wretchedness. You know the truth about you. See, a lot of times you don't recognize the truth about you, do you? You actually are telling yourself lies. I tell people all the time that the person I trust least is me. Well, how could that be? How do you trust yourself least? Because I lie to me better than anybody lies to me because when I lie to me, I believe it. That's why I asked Jason or John or Teresa, is that true? My wife lets me know, you're lying to you. She doesn't say it that way. She says it other more gracious ways, but I know it. What the glory of God does when it shines is it tells us the truth about us and about him. And the shepherds are afraid. And this scene happens where the angel, look at verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not. Now, now, why don't they need to fear? Because he's about to tell them good news. And he, here's what I want you to know. That word good news is the same word that we have for gospel. 
the gospel or the good news. And, and there's five aspects of the gospel, at least, that are mentioned here that I want to get at. What are the five aspects of this good news or this gospel that the angels tell them? The reason they don't need to fear, because I'm telling you something here that you want to know. And I, I want to hit on these five really sort of quickly, move through them. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you. Now notice that word, you. Second person, plural pronoun, referring to somebody. Who? The shepherds. I I want you to hear that. I bring you shepherds, you untrusted, vile, base, bottom-of-the-barrel culturally people. I bring you something. The ungodly, the unrighteous, the irreligious, I bring you something. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Not just the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the religious or the moral, but all the people. Even you shepherds. Even the lepers. Even the sinners and the prostitutes. In fact, especially them. For unto you, verse 11, is born. Who is Jesus born to? The shepherds. Unto you is born. This gospel, this good news, I think the first aspect you want to know about it is, it's for the ungodly. The good news is for the ungodly. Did you hear that? I want you to be clear. The good news is for the sinners. It's for the low Working, class, rough, untrustworthy sinners. The gospel's not for the healthy, but the sick. It's not for the righteous, but sinners. It's not for the godly, but the ungodly, the morally bankrupt. That's why, for example, when you read in Romans 4, you want to keep your hand there in Luke 2 and You can look with me at Romans 4. Paul has been laying out the gospel, saying we're all sinners and need Christ and can only be saved through faith in Christ and not through works. Paul makes this remarkable statement in verse 5 of Romans 4. And to the one who does not work. Now what does this person not do? Work. For what? Work for what? For some kind of status or achievement, attainment before God. Work for godliness. The one who does not work, but, listen to this, believes, trusts in him who does what? Justifies, forgives, declares righteous who? The ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Now, I want want you to stop and think about that. What do you bring to the table in your salvation? Your sin. So you bring. So if you're out there wondering, hey, I, w- I, w- I want to be a Christian. I want to I walk with Jesus. I want to know him. I just need to clean up my act first. I sort of need to take care of some things, get some things squared away in my life, and then I'll come. What you're essentially saying is, I bring something to the table in this relationship. And what Paul is saying is, In order to be in a redeemed relationship with the Lord, you better recognize the only thing you bring to the equation is your sin. That's it. Jesus brings everything that's good about that relationship. 
Jesus is the one who saves you. That's why we can read in Ephesians 2, look there really quickly as well, Ephesians chapter 2, if you're not as familiar, if you're in Romans, it's 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, then Ephesians. But Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What are we bringing to the table? Deadness, sin, Satanism, disobedience, children of wrath. That's what we bring to the table. What does God bring? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. See, it's for the ungodly. That's the first aspect of the gospel that I I want you to hear that the angels are proclaiming. This angel is proclaiming to these shepherds that This good news is for ungodly people. It's for you. It's the only kind of people who qualify for it because it's the only kind of people who live. Second aspect, go back to Luke, if you will, um, and chapter 2. The second aspect of the gospel that these angels are proclaiming, or this angel is proclaiming here, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I I, want to get at this because it's not only that this good news is for ungodly people, but it is that it is good news, not good advice. So that this message is for ungodly people, not godly people. It's for people who are a mess, not for people who have it together. It's for sinners, not the righteous. It's for people who are spiritually poor and bankrupt, realizing they bring nothing pleasing before God, but only he brings anything in his son that's pleasing to that relationship. It's for those folks. And not only is it for them, but what is for them is good news. It isn't good advice. God doesn't say to a bunch of spiritually dead people, let me give you some advice about how you clean up your act. Because dead people can't clean up their act. They're dead. He gives them good news. Jesus didn't come to offer us a new law. See, he didn't come and say, well, you know those Ten Commandments, they were kind of burdensome. And so, because they were just a little bit burdensome for you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to lower it down to one command, and here's the one command. Just believe in me. And if you get that one right, and you keep that command to believe in me, then we're good. As if there's some kind of advice being given here. He didn't come to bring us good advice. He came to bring us salvation from our violation of God's law. He kept both the precept, that's the the positive commands of God. He kept both the precept of God and he kept the penalty of the law that bared down on us. That's the good news. The good news is that Adam failed, that Israel failed, that you failed, but you know what? Someone didn't and his name is Jesus. He never failed. And not only to keep the law in every point in your place, tempted to sin as you are in every way, yet without sin, not only he do that, 
But then he went to the cross and paid the penalty due to you for your sin. He kept both the law's precept and the law's penalty in our place. What did you do in any of that? Nothing. What advice is there for you in any of that? None. What is there then? News. Here's the good news. Jesus saves sinners. Which leads me really to the third point. He says there, if you notice, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, I want to stop on there. Here's the the point I want to make on this aspect is that it's a fulfilled promise, not a new idea. In other words, this is a fulfilled promise and not a new idea. And, And here's what I mean by that. First, you have this clue in the text that This Savior, this Messiah, is being born in the city of David because the Old Testament promises that the Messiah, the Christ, would come and be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. And so he's fulfilling this Old Testament promise. Second, you hear this phrase, who is Christ the Lord? And the problem for most of us when we hear the word Christ is we think of it like a last name. He's Jesus Christ, Mr. Christ, right? No, that's not right, okay? That's a title, Jesus, the Messiah. So sometimes we probably should just stop ourselves every time we see the word Christ and say, oh, that's the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Messiah. He is, who's the Messiah? He's the one promised in the Old Testament, promised in Genesis 3.15, that God would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. At the point at which we fell into sin, See, God created us for righteousness. We fell into sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness. At the point at which that happened, God not only cursed us, but he promised something when he cursed Satan, which is that there would be one who would come from the woman, a seed who would come from the woman, a son who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent, our Savior, the Messiah. We're then told by He's going to come from Abraham's seed. And then it gets narrowed from Abraham. So you've got all of humanity with the woman. And then with Abraham, you have a specific nation. And then it gets narrowed from Abraham to the tribe of Judah. So you've gone from humanity to a nation to a specific tribe. And then it comes all the way through the promise to a specific household, the household of David. David is of the tribe of Judah, of the nation of, that's in Abraham or Israel. And he's a human. And it's coming through his house. And we're told in the Gospels very clearly at the beginning that Jesus is a son of Abraham and a son of David. What do you think that's telling us? He's this Messiah that's been promised throughout the Old Testament. So the Gospel, the good news, is not a new idea that came up when Jesus came around. The angels knew about this Gospel message, but the fulfillment had not yet arrived. And so now the fulfillment has arrived. The Messiah has come. The one to whom the whole Old Testament points is here. And you know the good news. I want you shepherds to know this. It's for you sinners It's news, it's not something you do. And it's news about the fact that the Messiah promised to save you and all mankind has arrived and he's been born in Bethlehem. It's a fulfilled promise that God has kept. Fourth aspect, it's salvation from God's wrath against your sins. I want you to hear that. 
It's salvation from God's wrath against your sins, not an affirmation of your worthiness. Did you hear that? I think it's important that we emphasize that. Look at what he says there. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Now I want you to know that that word Savior is emphasized in Mary's song. It's emphasized in Zechariah's song. It's emphasized here. It's emphasized again by Simeon. And I'll talk a little bit more about that on Wednesday night. But here's what the angels don't come and say. The angels don't come to the shepherds and say, Fear not, because God is not angry with you over your sin. The angel doesn't come to the shepherds and say, Fear not, because God is love and he never exercises wrath. The angel doesn't come to the shepherd and say, Fear not, because you are so irresistibly lovable that God couldn't help himself but to come and save you. He didn't come and say, Fear not, because God doesn't actually damn anyone to hell. So there really is no need for all this concern in his presence. Your good works outweigh your bad, after all. The angel comes and says, Fear not, because I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you in the city of David is born a Savior. A Savior from who? When you're saved, you're saved from something, right? Right? I, I know this is a stunner because we usually, well, I'm saved from Satan. Yeah? I'm saved from sin. Yeah? But what's the ultimate threat that dangles over your head as a sinner? The wrath of God. Who does Jesus come to save you from? I, and I, I say this with some trepidation because most people aren't used to thinking about this. Jesus came to save you from God. That's who you're saved from. From himself. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And all who are not found looking to him as Savior and Lord will experience his wrath. They will not know him as a lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They will know him as a lion of the tribe of Judah who exercises the wrath of God justly, righteously, and eternally against their sins. A savior from God's wrath against you for your sins is who's come. See, we deserve the awful wrath of God against us for our sins. We've rebelled against his holy rule. We have not trusted his holy word and we deserve great damnation. You've got to get a hold of that. If you don't understand that, the birth of Christ, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, don't really ever make you sing. Because you don't really realize what's happened here. We deserve damnation. That's why when you hear a verse like John 3.16, it causes your heart to rejoice because we know what we deserve from God and then we hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, that's why we hear, for herein is love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and did what? 
gave his son as a propitiation, a wrath bearer, a satisfier of God's justice against us for us, for our sins, a propitiation for our sins. That makes you sing when you believe you deserve wrath for your sins. Fifth aspect, he's not only salvation from our sins, not only salvation from our sins, he is the new king with a new kingdom. Did you hear that? He is the new king bringing a new kingdom. Notice what it says there in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Why? Because there's a son promised to David who would sit on David's throne, 2 Samuel 7, forever. That son is promised to him, and that son, the angels are announced, the angels announcing, is now born. The son promised who would sit on David's throne for eternity has been born in the city of David. He is Christ the Lord. He is the king. He's not just your savior. He's a new king who's brought us a new kingdom. This is why Colossians 1.13, for example, will say the following. If you want to look there, you can. You don't have to. But Colossians one. And verse 13 says this, he has delivered us. Who? Jesus. Has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's the kingdom we were in. Notice this is past tense. He has delivered us. If we're in Christ, if we're trusting in him, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us where? To the kingdom of his beloved son. You don't just get saved for your sins. You get a new king and you now live in a new kingdom. Now, I recognize that there's an already sense to this, that you have this new king and this new kingdom you live in, and there's a not yet sense to this because you still live in this fallen world. But the point is, that promise is so true that it's already ours. He is a new king who's delivered us into a new kingdom. Or 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Those are all kingdom language, isn't it? A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, he's your Lord, you're in his kingdom. And that's incredibly good news. It's incredibly good news because the kingdom of man, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of death, that kingdom in which we were born into originally, it's such an utter disappointment. The world around us is constantly coming apart at the seams, isn't it? We see it. And, and I guess you might say, <laughs> In some strange sense, God has blessed us with a 24-hour news cycle in which you just get to constantly be reminded of how the world is coming apart at the seams. And thus we long for a better kingdom. A better city whose architect and builder is God. And when Jesus arrived, the good news is that kingdom began. It isn't totally fulfilled yet, but it's begun. We long for a better king, one who rules in righteousness and who judges with equity. And the good news the angel is trumpeting is that the righteous and eternal Davidic king has come and he is bringing the kingdom with him. He's bringing it. So, how do the angels respond 
to this news because the angels hear this angel proclaiming, this angel of the Lord proclaiming the gospel. And the angels respond to it. It's not just the shepherds or Mary who responds to it. It's the angels who respond to it. So look back at Luke chapter 2 because their response to it is peculiar and, and stunning, really. Verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Now, now, now think about this. Here's the spontaneous nature of it, right? Suddenly. He announces this gospel, this good news, to the shepherds, and suddenly there is with this one angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. It's like an entire angelic choir arrived in the night sky in front of these shepherds. And what are they doing as they praise God and sang, really singing glory to God in the highest? That's that word gloria in excelsis Deo. That's what it means, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Now, if you have the King James Version, you might be used to hearing this, and uh, peace on earth, right? Goodwill to men. That's really an an unfortunate textual problem in translation um, that has been thankfully corrected by better manuscript evidence and better translators. But it says... Technically, what that verse reads is, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, by among those with whom he's pleased is not referencing because he's pleased with them because they're such good people, because he's speaking to the shepherds, right, about their salvation. This is a way of, of talking about the fact they're singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, shalom among those with whom he's pleased. In other words, God, the angels are singing Glory to God in the highest because God is in Christ reconciling man to himself. That's what they're saying. God is bringing peace between us and him in his son. We are not bringing that peace. God is bringing it. This is like a gospel in a nutshell. So what is, why do they say really glory to God in the highest? What is glory? I mean, we, that's a word we use in Christianity a lot. I want to glorify God, God's glory. Most of us don't even know what it means. We just say it. What is it? Well, glory is, is, in a sense, the display, if you will, of God's character. That's why to glorify God is to reflect his character back to him. God is holy and kind and just and gracious and merciful. And, and so when you glorify him, you're those things, reflecting his character back to him. And in this sense, when they're talking about glory here, they're not just talking about the display of God's character or who he is, but they're actually saying that God's character has been displayed in such a great way, in such a magnificent, beautiful, weighty kind of way, that they're really blown away by it and singing his praise. They're singing of his magnificence. You might think of it this way. Um, A woman has all these characteristics that give her beauty. But the glory of the woman really happens on what day? The wedding day, right? For most of us in our culture, the wedding day happens, and it's the one day, ladies, when everybody is, in fact, looking at you. I know you fear that that's the case. It's usually not, but that day they do. And so you're all dressed up, and everybody's looking at you, and you're coming down the aisle, and the husband, and that's why I always tell guys, people that one thing you need to do when you're looking at the bride is look up at the groom because it all is right in his face. That, that's the sweet spot right there is looking up at the groom while he's looking at his bride. But as the bride comes down in all her glory, 
you usually see the groom up there beaming like, this is my bride. That's why in 1 Corinthians, for example, the, we are told that the wife is the glory of her husband. She, he, he, he beams over his bride. He's, he's enraptured by her. It, it, I remember when Teresa came down the, the aisle 20 years ago, and a few days now. Our 20th anniversary was December 17th. She looks better than ever, by the way. But on that day, when she was coming down the aisle, I remember standing up at the, at, at the front and watching her come down, and I literally wanted to break out in spontaneous praise, right? I, I, do you see this before? She's coming up here for me. Are you as stunned by this as I am? But I thought that'd be inappropriate, so I didn't do it. <laughs> Listen, it's, it's, it's like the birth of a child. If you've been there for the birth of a child, it's glorious and, and, and nasty, but it's glorious. And you're, you're there, and this ba- out comes this baby, and what do you begin to do? You rejoice. I remember when my son was born, I, I, I didn't expect this at all when he was born. He came out and they, he started to cry and they handed him to you. And I started to cry. And I'm, why am I crying? What a big baby. Where did this come from? And I didn't expect it at all, but I was just so blown away. And the first thing I wanted to do was walk around and tell him, look at him. It's like athletes in all their glory. That's why we love the big athletic moments, right? When the athlete pulls that one play and we all are caught up in the magnificence of that athlete. It's why we love to go to the ocean. We see the ocean waves crash, and we see the glory and power and majesty of the ocean, and we start forgetting about us, don't we, in those moments? That's the thing about awe, is when we start to see the glory of something, it creates such an awe in us that we lose sense of ourselves. And man, is that gloriously joy-inducing, isn't it? That's why this is good news of great joy. What's the great joy? Suddenly, I hear this good news about Jesus, and I'm so enraptured by him that I lose a sense of myself, and now I know real joy is salvation in Christ. And his magnificence. And the angels see God in all his glory. And by the way, they see God in all his glory prior to this point, don't they? That's why this, stra- this phrase for me is peculiar. Glory to God in the highest. What do you mean in the highest? How is this a higher point of God's glory than the other point? I mean, here are the angels who saw God's glory in all creation like we do. Here are the angels who've seen God's glory in the Old Testament works he did, in the Old Testament prophecies he made. Here are the angels who see God standing before them in heaven and sing holy, holy, holy as we see in Isaiah 6. Here are these angels. Yet when they see the Lord born as a baby in Bethlehem, they say, this is the highest of God's glory. This is the greatest display of who he is. The, all, the holy, eternal, all-powerful, utterly sovereign creator God humbled himself to become a man to graciously save men. In the minds of the angels, that's the apex of God's glory. They've never seen anything like it. 
They're absolutely, personally devastated, moved to spontaneous praise over how glorious God is to do this thing. Angels are always learning. Did you know that? As we are. They're always learning. They're created beings. They had a starting point. They're growing in their knowledge all the time. So will we forever. You won't get to heaven and suddenly know everything because you won't get to heaven and suddenly be God. Right? You'll get to heaven and still be a creature who will be always growing in your learning. And the beauty of that is the more you grow in your learning, what's going to happen? The more you know about God, the more your joy is going to increase, just like in the angels. And so as you continue to learn more about God, your joy continues to increase forever. And here are these angels increasing in their own joy as they learn more and more about God. That's why in 1 Peter 1 when Peter is talking about the gospel that was written down even in the Old Testament, as those Old Testament prophets were looking forward to the salvation that we have in Christ, he makes this statement Peter does at the end, talking about the good news that's been delivered to you. And he says this, things into which angels long to look. Angels long to look into the salvation we have. And here's what they're seeing. Why? Because they have never seen the demonstration of the glory of God more clearly than they've seen it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that demonstrates the glory of God more clearly than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the angels are singing because they know that God is in Jesus reconciling man to himself. They see the gospel in Jesus and they break out in song about God's loving, gracious reconciling mercy in Christ, and they can't help but sing of his glory. Because you know what? The angels know the truth about us. They know the truth about God. And they're absolutely blown away by the love of God in Christ. They can't help but proclaim his glory in the heavens. Can't help it. We've got to sing of him. That the one who is holy, holy, holy would lovingly and graciously condescend to the utter humiliation of becoming a man and of the cross to save those who are sinful absolutely causes awe in the angels and they break out in song. And they sing in this heavenly choir, glory to God in the highest. That's what they see at Christmas. That's what the angels sing at Christmas. And the shepherds respond to all this, and I want you to see their response, and I just want to make one quick point about it. Look there at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph And the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child, this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And the shepherds, verse 19, if you just want to jump there, over verse 19 to verse 20. And the shepherds returned, and look what happens, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. See, what did the shepherds do with all this? They believe. 
they believe, and then they go and tell others. They believe and go and tell others. They leave singing and praising. I I want you to understand this because the shepherd's first instinct when they believe this great news is to go tell other people. It's to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light or his marvelous light. That's what they leave to do. It moves them not only to believe, but then to go tell other people. And I, I want you to hear this, Sovereign Grace, because we need to be clear about this. We don't have first or primarily an evangelism problem when we don't share our faith. Think, well, I have a, an evangelism problem. No, that's not your first problem. Your first problem, if you don't sing and proclaim Jesus to others, is an awe problem. It's an amazement problem. You somehow have an insufficient understanding and delight in how gracious God has been to you in Christ. Because if you had the understanding these angels had, what would happen in you? You'd break out in song about Jesus just like they do. You'd be like these shepherds who run off proclaiming his name. These guys get it and they go tell others. So the question is, are you amazed in awe of the love and grace of God in Jesus. The joy and amazement of these angels and the shepherds causes them to pour forth speech about the glories of the gospel. And we're saved to do the same thing, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. When you um, graduated from high school or college, if, if assuming you have, or you got married, or you had children, or you bought a new home, or you gained some new accomplishment, you likely published that good news to everybody you knew, didn't you? Well, God has reconciled you to himself in Jesus. There's no greater good news than the news that Jesus has come and saved you. And the question is, have you published that good news to everyone you know? Because it's way better news than your college graduation or your wedding or the birth of a child or an accomplishment. Way better news. Have you published it to people? If not, your problem isn't really weakness in evangelism. Your problem is a failure to be in awe of how gracious God has been to us in Christ. So what do you do about that? Because I don't want to just leave you with a bunch of guilt. What do you do about it? You can correct it. I just want to give you... Four little quick steps. First, pray. Just pray. Ask God to grow in you an awareness of how good the gospel is. Just pray and ask him. God, continue to impress upon my heart how good the good news is. Give me boldness to proclaim Jesus to others. You know, the apostle Paul says, I want you to pray that God would give me boldness to speak of Jesus. That's even tough for him. He wanted prayer so that he'd have boldness to speak of him. Pray for God to be with your mouth to speak of Jesus and pray for God to be at work in your heart to grow in your awareness or your awe of how good the gospel is. Second, be consistently under the preaching of the word. Be reading the word. Know, trust 
that the Spirit of God will use his word to move in your heart to give you an awe of the gospel. In other words, what I'm saying is we all have to grow in our awe of the gospel. And the way we grow in our awe of the gospel is first and foremost prayer and hearing the word. The Spirit works through those two things to grow in our hearts an awe for what Jesus has done for us and for him specifically. And then he creates in us or gives us the ability, the mouth, to speak or proclaim that. So pray and be in the word. Third, open your mouth, even when you don't feel like it, and talk about Jesus. Even you don't feel like it. Even when you feel like you're going to be humiliated. Even when you're afraid that you don't have the right things to say. doesn't matter. Trust that the word of God does the work. The spirit works through his word. Open your mouth and talk about him. Remind yourself of the good news you know and others don't, and open your mouth and tell them. You can do simple things. You can invite people to the Christmas Eve service or a Sunday service or your small group. Or you can just flat out ask them, what's their hope in life? When you die, what's your hope? What's going to happen to you? Do you know about Jesus? Do you know that God's wrath bears down upon you? It becomes a pretty uncomfortable conversation, but you should have it. It does. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to say, oh, this is incredible. People just love it when you say this to them. Love him enough to say it, though. Love Jesus enough to want to just talk about him. Now, you can't generate that in your own heart, but God can. That's why I said pray and be in the word. Fourth, engage your grace group. That's our small groups here at Sovereign Grace, for those of you who don't know, in praying for you and with you. Ask them to pray for you and with you. If other believers around you, ask them to pray for you and with you. Engage them in befriending your unbelieving friends with you. See, proclaiming the good news is better coming from a choir of people than a single voice anyway. So engage people in it with you. I pray, Sovereign Grace, that the Holy Spirit moves in us so that we not only lift up our voices and sing the praises of Jesus in here, but so that we lift up our voices and sing the praises of Jesus out there. So that all would know this good news that Christ has been born unto them. Let me sing or pray. Father, we are thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ. We are thankful that your Son has come as you promised. We're thankful that he's come to sinners like us, ungodly, undeserving people. We're thankful that he's come to save us Thankful he's come to rescue us from the kingdom of sin and Satan and man and bring us into the kingdom of your beloved son. We're thankful, Father, that this is because of your great love and great mercy for us, great grace that we did not deserve, that we never earned, that was given to us freely in Christ. And we pray that you would create in our hearts as a church a sense of awe for your son and what you've done in the gospel. We know, Father, that we can't generate that out of our own hearts. So we ask that your spirit would be powerfully at work in us to show us the truth about us, the truth about God, and what he's done for us in Jesus, and that we would rejoice with the angels, that we would sing glory to God in the highest.
Because God has reconciled us to himself in Christ, and we don't deserve it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.